Thanks to everyone who voted for me. I'm pretty sure that included Jason Bushford, who recently passed away. Uh, Jason was a great supporter of the Vancouver media and a great man. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to another edition of America's Best Worst Canadian Sports Podcast. That's right, Real Good Show is back at it again for another week. It is episode number 181, and uh, you haven't heard from me in a little while. I didn't want to do an episode during the NHL uh, Stanley Cup Final, and I didn't want to do an episode during the NBA Final, because both series, I think, were around games four or five when we last spoke, and I felt like recording something at that point uh, w would be foolish. It would be instantly dated. So to avoid instantly dated material, let's do an NHL draft preview, and the draft is this coming Friday. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's the perfect thing to do, and I am joined uh, to do that uh, by none other than uh, the masked draft analyst himself. I'm going to leave his identity a mystery. You'll have to guess who it is to avoid trouble uh, from between radio stations. No, I'm kidding. Returning to the show, uh, J.D. Burke himself, the D stands for draft, and uh, <laughs> J.D., welcome back to Real Good Show. It's it's my pleasure to be here, and, and partially my fault that we couldn't do it yesterday. I mean, I'm not sure if that would have made a huge difference, but uh, burning the candle at every end imaginable, and, and glad that I could kind of sneak away from my office, uh, you know, break my, my chains there for a second, and swing by, and... Uh, you know, do some work that's uh, maybe a little bit more enjoyable than what I've been doing in, in days past, tracking, watching film, cutting clips. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love, my, I love my job, but when you're doing it until 1 a.m. and back up at 7 to do radio and all that stuff, believe yeah. me, there, there are moments where you go, maybe I could take a break from this, and I'm glad to do so at this moment. Yeah, you're taking in the bird's eye view of Rogers Arena right now from uh, the beautiful uh, studio up here in, in my apartment at the moment before you are just trapped in there for the next several days, I assume, because there has been an interesting development in the life of one J.D. Burke since we last spoke. You are now the editor-in-chief of Elite Prospects. Yes. Uh, congratulations. And uh, what's that been like for you? Busy. Yeah. Busy. I don't know if you can see these circles under my eyes, but like <laughs> they take up half of my face. And it's just because I my, came in. My man's looking a little puffy at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, thing is, when you, you come into a job like this where so much of your workload is, is draft-centric or, or prospect-centric, this is the moment when your website is supposed to make hay. And what that's meant for me is catching up on about a year's worth of work over a span of maybe two and a half to three months. Yeah. Uh, so it's meant kind of ironing out our crew at EP Rinkside, uh, instituting new policies, whether it relates to the comments section, which we've opened up to uh, premium and non-premium users, uh, creating our first sale of the summer, uh, our first sale ever. And, and what that means is that if you use the promo code uh, EP Rinkside Draft, you get a month free with a premium subscription to Elite Prospects and like EP Rinkside. It's like a pro wrestler over here, always working. Always working, man. <laughs> and uh, it's it's been a it's been a really fun process, to be honest with you, because 
I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed covering the Canucks, but I think the prospect beat is a lot more fun. Uh, and I don't mean that as a pot shot to the Canucks. I mean, we'll get to that eventually, I'm yeah. sure. But uh, it's it's just that you're you're constantly. Uh, changing. It's a new task every day. You're looking at a different player. You're trying to divine what the future holds. And because of the amount of uncertainty that's baked into the draft just by default, you don't really have the opportunity to just be right or wrong in the moment. You've got to wait years and years into the process. You're constantly learning. There's a new challenge at every corner. It's it's really kind of uh, reinvigorated my love of the game of hockey, and, and I really hope that reflects in some of the work we're doing. Yeah, I mean, you've completely like changed the way that website operates on some level, I think, because in the past, mm-hmm. my uh, concept of elite prospects has been basically like a, like a, like another version of hockey DB, basically. You a can, better version. A better. A, version. a much better version. It <laughs> looks significantly better. Look, I'll tell you right now. I have a profile on Elite Prospects. There you go. As a media man working in junior hockey, both up north and in, in a team that that will not be named, uh, the the Blurry Seagulls, as we've referred to them, uh, of course, on this program in the past. But regardless. Uh, I, I, do I have a, pro, uh, a profile on Hockey DB? Absolutely not. Some would say that makes Hockey DB better. I would disagree. <laughs> but like you know, it's been a, a profile site where you look at, at where guys have played in the past, what their stats are, and yeah. it is now a profile site still, but a different kind of profile, in-depth yes. writing, a place where you can go to uh, you know get get kind of a better idea of who these guys are. Uh, you know, as they are coming up into a position like now where these are all names that we're going to be hearing quite a bit during the NHL draft. Yeah, I mean, hockey has never really had an integrated uh, database and, and statistical stream network and, and content uh, base that, that other sports have enjoyed, whether it's, for example, a pro football focus in football. I'm mm-hmm. a big NFL nerd, so uh, bear with me if that doesn't really register. I know that the MLB has a couple stat sites like that, too, where you can look into advanced numbers that might not be <clears throat> necessarily available on something like MLB.com, but they not only provide the information, they, they try to contextualize it for their audience and bring it into easily consumable, digestible articles. And I think that's what we're trying to do here at EP Ringside as well. And we're going to have a big summer that way too. I don't want to say too much or I'll get in a lot of trouble, but we're partnering <laughs> up with... Uh, I'm sure the bosses are, are listening to Real Good every week. Oh, man, you never... <laughs> ne- they're not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to humor you. Yeah, here, no, I like it. I like it. Yeah, but I would love it if your bosses were tuning in. I mean, they're they're pretty cool people. Like Swedes are Swedes are awesome. They just the country of Sweden produces like this unique type of bro that is is superior to the North American one. It's yeah. just like so much more endearing and friendly and sweet. Uh, so so loving that part of the company where you just constantly interact with people who. I mean, you understand the Sedins a lot more when you have to work and you're the only Canadian surrounded by, like, 30 Swedes. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, so they really are all like this. Um, I mean, I was remarking the other day, you listen to Elias Patterson talk in interviews. He sounds exactly like Marcus Nasland. Not every Swede has the same voice. Like, Edler does not sound like Nasland. The Sedins How would we know? Like he doesn't Naslund. talk. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Edler might sound exactly like <laughs> Forsberg. We have no idea. But, uh, uh, you know, he, that's true. But, you know, um, is that, does that, that's kind of a daunting thing, though, right? Because, like, y- I think it's pretty easy to read the tea leaves 
uh, in advance of the NHL season. Maybe this is the wrong year to make that argument because I don't think any of us would have picked the St. Louis Blues to be the Stanley Cup champion at season's end, uh, you know, or season's beginning or playoffs beginning. I don't think anyone would have picked that team to, to win it all. But, uh, you know, I think you can pretty easily read the tea leaves on say what the Vancouver Canucks are going to be at the start of the year versus what they end up as at the end of the year it's not a hard job with the prospects side of things like you know our friend Jackson McDonald has been Mm -hmm. doing some work with you yeah and has been doing some work with uh, our friends at Next Gen as well and he has been pretty open about the fact that when it comes to prognosticating and, and projecting and saying what guys are going to be, he wants to shy away from that side of it because mm-hmm. the possibility of being wrong is enormous. And, you know, you, you open yourself up to this uh, entirely plausible situation where five years down the line, you'll have made 100 predictions and 97 of them will be wrong. Well, are, are you nervous about that? Not necessarily. I, th- I think that, for one, uh, I've got access to, to data and information that uh, some teams might not even have access to because of my, my connection to the good, the good old boys at uh, Next Gen Hockey, and I, I get access to some of their proprietary analytics here. And uh, I also just kind of accept that, that comes with the territory, right? I think that, on average, you're looking at an NHL entry draft of about 200 and I think 30 plus players producing close to 60 NHLers on average. I think the actual number is 56. So if I'm getting 97 out of 100 wrong, odds are most teams aren't doing a lot better. Maybe they're getting 90, 94 out of 100 yeah. wrong, right? And yeah. and I'm doing this Honestly, as... Honestly, 97 a, out of 100 wrong might be an improvement for some teams. Absolutely. It would be an improvement on the Vancouver Canucks for about 10-plus <laughs> years there. And, and that's <laughs> that's not even a, a real like joke. I mean, you look at the way that their draft unfolded. I mean, there's, there's also so much at work that you can't uh, divine at, at, during their age 17 seasons that are going to play a significant impact in their development. I mean, uh, injuries, mm-hmm. for example, are a huge one. Uh, like you look at Hunter Shinkarik and, and I know people who evaluated him at the time of his draft year, NHL scouts who couldn't believe the way that his career panned out. Of course, he did drop on draft day, but uh, the, the only way to explain it really is that once he had that hip surgery, he was never the same and he didn't have much explosiveness to begin with. And uh, with with that that surgery, that injury, he wasn't able to even recapture the, the mediocre stride that he had in the first place. And at that point, you got a player who isn't fast enough to even be adequate at the AHL level. And what we've seen is somebody who is basically uh, starting to, to fizzle out of even having a professional career period. So injuries are a big one. Uh, circumstances like which team drafts the player. I yeah. think I was talking with this about Jackson recently, like... Last year when the San Jose Sharks drafted Ryan Merkley, I was like, oh, that's going to work out. Whereas if the Canucks took Ryan Merkley last year, even if the talent level would suggest that it was a fine pick on its on its own, I don't think that they have the developmental chops to turn him into the best possible player that he can be. Well, I mean, even at the pro level, that's it's all about fit, right? Yeah, For yeah example, absolutely. As we sit down to record this, the Vancouver Canucks have literally just re-signed Alex Edler mm-hmm. to a three-year deal. Alex Edler was a huge topic of conversation the last time you and I sat down. And I don't want to pivot away entirely from prospects discussion right now Mm -hmm. because I do want to talk about the draft with you uh, for the better part of the next hour. But, uh, you know, for example, 
I think it would have been beneficial, perhaps, for Alex Edler to go to another team where he could have been a second or third pairing guy used in a specialty role that like hits all of the things that he does well. Whereas in Vancouver, did he have a great season last year? He, yes, he did. But he was ov- also overworked. Like he's he's in a position where he probably shouldn't be because there's just simply no other person to fill that role. And if that's true for veterans, it's absolutely true for rookies being integrated into the lineup as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, you look at Edmonton. A lot of people say the problem was they didn't integrate enough veterans into that lineup, and that's why they had trouble rebuilding. I I don't think that's the case. They didn't integrate the correct veterans and. What Andrew Ference ended up revealing this year actually was that uh, leadership and creating a positive culture can't be a bottom-up process. It has to be a top-down one. And that's where uh, integrating uh, veterans to to prevent players like, for example, uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins or Taylor Hall back in the day from having too much on their plate too soon, Mm -hmm. that's where you can really kind of see the difference being made. Whereas having a third-pair defenseman trying to tell a number one overall pick what they should or shouldn't do just isn't going to work. Yeah. Right, so so there's an example of a team that tried their absolute hardest to create that environment for success for their, their players, but ultimately failed because they went from a bottom down instead of a top down approach. And so, I mean, it's it's there's so many different factors that play into it, so many moving parts, so many different variables that you have to try to account for in real time. And I mean, it, if if you're getting about, let's say, the average team, they they aim for about two picks to to turn into NHLers out of every NHL entry draft. That's it. Two picks out of seven. If you're you're hitting on that, you're getting at about mm, sub-20% rate. If you as an analyst can kind of maintain about a 20% success rate, if you kind of juxtapose yourself into those drafts, Mm -hmm. I think you should feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah, that's probably true. If I mean, I mean, it's the only industry where twenty twenty uh, percent success rate would would actually be passable. Yeah, would be you. You deserve a, a job with the pros if you're doing better than them, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's funny because I think that the NHL, what we're seeing is, I mean, the the, the numbers are what they are. You're never going to be able to pluck more talent than is there, but. What's interesting is I think we're seeing the the later rounds become less valuable as well because of the fact that with the advances in analytics, with the advances in biomechanics and sports science and all this stuff, uh, what we're seeing is that teams are getting more and more effective with those early round picks as opposed to where they were in years previous. So. Uh, I mean, it's it's a total crapshoot even for the teams once you get past round four. And even like, if you're wrong, as long as you're following like a, the a process that gets right results, you know, even 20% of the time, it's it's the same with sports. You know, not every team will win the cup every year, but if you're following the correct process to be a winner, you should not shy away from that. No, and I think that you had a good conversation with with C. Morley, who used to write at Canucks Army and just rules in general. Uh, about the San Jose Sharks and how they put themselves in a position to contend for nearly, what, 20-plus years or something to that effect, and that's all you can do. Like, that's that's it. That's The way that the NHL is structured, there's so much luck baked into it. Uh, you're all playing with the same amount of, of resources, or you're certainly capped at the same amount of resources available to you, at least as it concerns to the salary cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's again, that's, that's sports in general, right? And, and, and the same laws apply to the prognostication business as well. 100%. Well, let's get to that prognosticating because I made uh, the prediction last year on this very program. I called my shot and said 
that Quinn Hughes was going to fall to seven and the, the Vancouver Canucks would take him. I felt really confident in being able to do that because, you know, it, it felt like there was a clear delineation to the way things could go in the first six picks. But we, nobody saw what was going to happen with Barrett Hayden at five. Though. That's, true. that's and if, true. And if you knew that was happening, I want to borrow your crystal ball for I, this week. I didn't know <laughs> how it would happen, but I did know that just some, some, someone was going to go off the board. All you needed was one wild pick for Hughes to be able to, to fall, and I felt like that was going to happen. As we come into this draft, the Canucks picking 10th, I have no fucking clue, J.D., who they are going to draft, who's even going to be available to them. And I don't know if that's the difference being able uh, to being able to predict picks one through six versus picks one through nine, or if there's just a different level of depth to this draft where once you get out of a clear-cut three or four, it just seems like it's a jumbled order all over the place. 100%. And even at three and four, there's no real consensus, right? Some people, like myself, have Alex Turcott going to the Blackhawks at three. Others have Bowen Byram. And, and there's a, not even a real consensus right now between one and two even. No. This no. draft is all over the place. Well, I, I think the, the thing about this draft is that it's it's – a really, and I'm surprised this isn't talked about more often, but I'm confident it's one of the deeper drafts that we've ever seen in the NHL in like the last five plus years. It's ridiculous. I, I when I was putting together my final top 93, the amount of like humming and hawing that I had to do to get to that that list and its final uh, place, it was unlike any year previous where you could feel pretty confident about where you're going to rank players one through about 20. Then it gets a little bit dodgy, a little bit difficult. But this one, I mean. I was having uh, debates with myself all the way into the 40s and 50s, and, mm. and that's that just speaks to the overall talent here, and particularly once you get into that 5 to about 12 group, I think you're seeing a lot of parity between those players, and that's going to be where, where things really get interesting. For me, I think the draft starts at 5, and and from that point onward, I think that we have the potential to see perhaps a Barrett Hayton-like pick sneak into that 5 to 10 range, and... and for me, like I, I think if you're the Vancouver Canucks, you have to be hoping that, let's say, uh, Peyton Krebs falls to you at 10. I think that is a dream scenario. Barring that, you could be happy with a Matthew Boldy. You could feel happy with a Victor Soderstrom. I know everybody pushes back against that, but uh, believe me, there's there's a lot to like about Victor Soderstrom's game. And and certainly, if you can get... like I, I, I think here's something that I've learned in this industry is a little like digression here. Sure. People overestimate the impact of the draft. So if you look at it historically, if you can get a second-pairing defenseman at 10th overall, you're actually doing, you're doing fine, right? It's, you want to aim higher naturally. I get that. I get the, the, um, the impulse on your part to think that you should be aiming for the stars there. But the numbers just don't bear that out. And, and if you feel confident, uh, as I do, that Victor Soderstrom can be a second-pair defenseman at the NHL level, and it's my understanding that the Canucks are quite high on Soderstrom themselves. That's not that bad. I think you can feel pretty good about that. Is, are there any names that you feel like fans should be dreading if they hear the call at, at 10? Uh, like, is there is there anyone... Look, I, I've talked about this multiple times, being at the draft party in 2016, and yeah. all of you Levy's name gets called. That is an entire building that wanted Matthew Kachuk on the Canucks. And everybody, like, whenever Kachuk gets brought up now, it's always like, oh, hindsight's 2020. It wasn't hindsight. That was not a hindsight. This is not a hindsight desire. Everyone in that building 
just like let out an exacerbated sigh. The air came out of Rogers Arena when all Ulevi's name came up, which had nothing to do with Ulevi. It's that he wasn't Matthew Kachuk. Yeah. But every year there are guys that, you know, this fan base is seemingly dreading the possibility that, that the team will step up to the podium and draft. Uh, give me like three names that you feel like would be a, 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 you know, the wrong way to go at 10. To be honest, I don't know if there are three. Really? I really don't because, I mean, you look at the players ranked from about 5 to 15. It, 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 like You can quibble with the order in which they are ranked, I think. And, and of course, that's our, our job as analysts to, to hash out those differences, to, su- to kind of uh, stake our claims to where each player belongs. But I don't think there's anybody that stands out as sort of a, a landmine uh, waiting for the Canucks to, to jump on top of it. Like, for example, I think that you would argue the Ole Ulevi one. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the most outlandish name I've heard connected to the Canucks, and I haven't heard this from any sources either, so I don't know if there's any validity to it, is probably Thomas Harley. Not because I don't necessarily like Thomas Harley as a defensive prospect. I think that he's somebody who uh, would make a lot of sense for a team closer to 20 than he would 10. I think that's the issue. And so many inconsistencies in his game this year. I wonder about how much of his point production was a byproduct of playing insane minutes for the Mississauga Steelheads. Uh, and and even so, like uh, Thomas Harley, I could easily see developing into a second pairing defenser, uh, <laughs> defenseman, not defenser, uh, at the NHL level with with a little bit of time and refinement to his game. It so it seems like there's pushback on the idea. Uh, I think it was Kuzma who had an article out about how Broberg it, Broberg might be a okay, guy. Okay, Broberg is the landmine, but I don't anticipate he's going to be available to the Canucks unless they they execute the move that I'd I'd reported on earlier, where they swap picks with the Detroit Red Wings at six overall. Really, even as a landmine potential prospect that you do not have faith in you still think he's going to go it sounds higher like than 10 it sounds like the edmonton oilers uh, are are seriously enamored with philip broberg that's that's all the scuttlebutt and it wouldn't be the first time that ken holland has gone out on a limb and and gone against the current i remember two years ago in chicago there was a lot of draft analytics twitter and draft twitter more broadly uh, a lot of consternation about Michael Rasmussen and whether he was worth a, even a first-round pick, much less a top-ten pick. And to Ken Holland's credit, they they went up to the podium, they 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 stuck their claim on on Michael Rasmussen, and look, here we are, two years later, he just had close to a 20-point season in the NHL in about 70 games. And uh, to to Ken Holland's credit, I think it's working out for him because if you can get that out of a player in their draft plus two season. Uh, what what does that pretend for the future? So pretty good. Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily trying to say this to go like I, I would have their I would I would fully support the decision to take Broberg, but what I'm saying is there is a precedent for Ken Holland making a move like that. And all of the insiders out there in the industry seem to be in alignment on one fact about this top ten, and that is that Philip Broberg is not gonna get past the Oilers at eight. That said, who knows, maybe it's the smoke screen. Never know. Yeah, uh Alex Newhook is a curious one too. I saw Sam Constantino's rankings today. He had him at nineteen going to Ottawa. That's also been a guy who's been talked about for the Canucks at ten. Is that just kind of the local uh enamoration with like BC and BCHL and WHL players, or is it just a case of like the the ten to twenty range in this draft is exactly like we were talking about with one, two, three, four, and five through ten, kind of any which way she goes. Yeah, I mean uh, Alex Newhook, I, I would be quite happy with that pick for the Canucks. I, I watched a lot of him this season in the uh, the BCHL and. 
Obviously, there is a deg- uh, an added degree of difficulty in projecting a player who's playing in the BCHL like Newhook was because it is a, a tier below major junior. Don't I know it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you'd know better than most. <laughs> and so there Some is. Some teams are a tier below the tier below as well. <laughs> <laughs> I won't touch the, that. The less said, the better. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'll only cause more harm if I if I elaborate <laughs> on that one. But I mean, mental scarring. Here's the thing. <laughs> when he had the opportunity to play at a high level against his peers at the at the U18 tournament on a line with Peyton Krebs, and I believe uh, Braden Tracy was their winger, if memory serves. Yeah. Uh, I'm operating on, like, zero sleep, so cut me some no, slack. That's good. wrong. It's all good. But anyway, I know that Peyton Krebs and, and Newhook were on a line together, and they were just cooking in that tournament. And I think both of them finished for a tie in the tournament lead with points. So... I have proof of concept that he can play against high-end players and play with high-end players as well. And and the thing that I like about Newhook's game is I think he's going to project as about a two-way center at the NHL level, has the potential to be a second-line stalwart defensively just because of his uh, his speed and his balance. He's really hard to knock off the puck. He can disrupt passing plays because of his awareness and his anticipation. Uh, I, I really like Alex Newhook. I have no concerns about what he's going to be at the NHL level. And, and for whatever it's worth, he's going to a really good program in Boston College and, and joining some really good talent there as well. So I like his projection, and I think that you can feel pretty comfortable that he's going to be a second-line center at the NHL level when it's all said and done. You mentioned Peyton Krebs there. Uh, and we come into the draft. He's got this horrible injury. Whoever drafts him, he's going to be walking up to the stage on crutches. Yeah. There, there is this part of Vancouver fandom that's like, well, of course. Of course they're going to draft the guy on crutches. We've seen them do it before. It doesn't end well. Uh He's a gr- he's a great player, right? Like this injury shouldn't be keeping teams away, should it? Like uh, he wasn't going to play in your lineup next year anyway. Exactly. Like uh, it shouldn't have any real bearing. I mean, if anything, I'd I'd have to check his birth date and his eligibility in his uh, draft plus two season for the AHL or whatever. But uh, realistically, he probably wasn't going to play in your lineup for the first two years after you drafted him. I think the talent is there, but. Uh, he needs to get a bit stronger, and and certainly the injury is going to hamper him on that front. I think that I can at least acknowledge that much. But ultimately, he, he is number six on my board. So clearly, I believe in his talent level. I saw a player who was treating every shift with the Kootenai ice, whether they were down 7-1 late in the third period or, or tied 1-1 at, at the beginning of the first, game one or game 82. He gave his all. Like it was his last shift that he was ever going to play. Like it was game seven overtime of the Stanley Cup final. There's so much made about intangibles, about a player's competitiveness, not compete level, that's not an actual thing, uh, competitiveness. And like you can actually see it in a player like Peyton Krebs. And further to that point, I don't know how he didn't just completely go bonkers this season because there was no talent around him. His his two wingers the year prior had a career ho- uh, career high in goals of 7 and 10 goals. He was able to elevate them one to 26 goals, the other to, I think, uh, the low teens. So he wasn't working with a lot of talent. He had to fight uphill every game this year in Kootenai, and he still produced at a comparable rate to Kirby Dock and Dylan Cousins, who would be his two chief competitors in the Western Hockey League as it relates to the NHL entry draft. I see a special player in the making. I'm not sure if he's going to be a first-liner, but I feel so comfortable that he has top six up. It's top six upside, whether it's on the wing or down the middle of the lineup, that I would be totally comfortable taking him at sixth overall and even 
if, if he falls to the Canucks, they should be sprinting to the podium. Well, uh, you mentioned he's not going to be playing in your lineup next year, maybe even not the year after that. One player for which that is an assurity uh, before we even see what their skill level is, is uh, Vasily Podkolzin, the, yeah. the Russian enigma player of this season who is signed to a KHL contract for the next two years after this draft and will not be able to join uh, whichever team happens to draft him until 2022, I believe. How much do you think that is really going to keep teams away? Because, you know, this is a very skilled player, obviously. This is a player who is going to be playing in a men's league immediately next season, which is a very encouraging sign. He played a lot in a men's league this year. Absolutely. In so, the VHL. You know, I'm sure that there are general managers who are picking in the top ten like Jim Benning, who feel like the pick that they are going to make here can make or break their future employment. If you are banking on uh, early return on investment, like the Canucks have enjoyed, uh, you know, getting these players into the lineup within a year, essentially, these last few drafts, is that (laughs) cause to stay away? Or is the upside of a pod Colson enough to buy in on him? Full disclosure, Vasily Podkolzin was my absolute favorite player to watch this year. Oh, fuck yeah. His tape was just... Oh, yeah, I forgot I can swear on this one. His tape (laughs) is fucking phenomenal. He is the player that Jim Benning likes to describe Jake Vertanen as. I mean, this guy, he is an absolute bully, and he was a bully against men in the Russian VHL, which is a tier removed from the KHL, one of the, the best European leagues in the world, actually second only to the NHL in quality. He was playing in their AHL, and he was productive. He was disruptive, and even if the production wasn't at a level that you, you'd expect from an elite, elite prospect, which some people have posited, I don't know if I agree with that assessment for starters, but there's also the fact that Russian leagues are notoriously high variance when it comes to scoring uh, one year to the other. I mean, you look at Grigory Denisenko last year, there were concerns about his ability to produce and I spoke to to uh, somebody who worked in a, a front office of an NHL franchise close to the situation. What they said was that their research just revealed that it was a low-scoring year for the, the MHL in general last season. So I'm not expecting a huge jump this year, and I'm not expecting myself to, to blame Pod Colson if he doesn't uh, single-handedly raise his point totals to a level that satisfies people who do box score scouting. I mean, this guy is the real deal. He's physically mature. He's a power forward who likes to take the puck to the net, and he'll drag two or three defenders on him all the way to it. I mean, just a, a, a violent, violent player. And and the thing that I like about him is, you know the stereotype about Russians. We all do when it comes to hockey. They don't care about the defensive side of the game. They're not competitive. This guy is giving his all. If he doesn't have the puck on his stick, like I, I clipped one play and I included it in my top 93 rankings where he did a double D on like, he, he actually double Dion'd two full-grown men in the VHL, and he did it on a back check. He didn't have the benefit of facing them from the front. He literally caught up to one and swatted him aside like a fly, collected himself in time to throw a lunging shoulder check on his trailing teammate who was trying to collect the puck, and then race the other way with it. In terms of upside, I think that Vasily Colson might be the third highest upside player in this draft which is why I was able to keep him at number five overall even though some people had concerns about a a lackluster U18 I just think that he has all the tools there and I know this isn't going to be a a popular comment with stats club but 
look, power forwards in the playoffs have added utility. They really do. And I've seen that uh, in Vancouver with Todd Bertuzzi, his ability to take over a game, take over a shift. His ability to provide locker room uh, or rather bulletin board material for the opposition to come back and win a series. <laughs> I'd blame that a lot more on Dan. I Cucci. know. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, Fuck you're right. He was awful. You're right. No, like, look, you <laughs> look no further than this past playoff run to see that power forwards do have additional value when you get to the postseason. Mm hmm. From from multiple teams, not just the Blues. And and he's such a good skater too. Like this isn't a Milan Lucic where you're thinking like you have to correct his stride to make him an effective power forward at the NHL level. Like this guy can fly up and down the ice. Great conditioning. Yeah, like I I just am such a huge fan of his game. Would he fit the Canucks' mo? Look, I I actually would be able to empathize with Jim Benning in this scenario where he just lost Nikita Triamkin. Let's, let's be real here. We all know the score. If he doesn't make the playoffs next year, that could be curtains for the Jim Benning era in Vancouver. And and I'm sure that he's eminently aware of that as well. So, like, I, I think I could totally understand him not being, uh, I, I guess, secure or comfortable making that bet. But uh, whichever team does in that top ten and takes the time to wait for it, yeah. it could pay off big time. I was going to say, at the same time, does not feel like the player that you just described is exactly what not just Jim Benning, but go back to the Gillis era, what the you know Aquilini-led Canucks have been searching for for the better part of the last decade. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's 100%. That's what they thought Zach Cassian was. That's... What they thought Jake Vertanen was. David Booth on some level. David Booth, absolutely. Steve Bernier. The list and goes on and on and on. on. And on. Brad Isbister under Dave Nonis. Oh, I like, forgot about Isbister. <laughs> I could never forget about that. <laughs> but no, I think that like I've never felt more comfortable projecting somebody as an NHL power forward than I do with Vasily Podkolz. And if, and if the Canucks don't want to take that bet at 10th overall, I think it would be foolish because... Look, I mean, uh, whoever they draft isn't going to save Jim Benning's job or cost him his job this year, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, like, I understand why there would be some uh, hesitancy on his part, but I don't think that I, uh, I I can square that circle for myself personally. Well, you've got him at fifth. Yeah. Do you anticipate that he does drop just because of the Russian factor? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, I think that we might see a scenario where Pod Colson makes it all the way into the low teens. I, I could see it happening. And I mean, like the Russian factor is one thing. Another is the, the UA, contract. The yeah. contract. The other is the poor U18 performance because NHL GMs, they don't have a lot of say in, in the draft picks in rounds two through seven. Mm -hmm. In fact, they have almost none, even Jim Benning. Like he's got this reputation as a master scout and, and certainly it's well-earned if you look at his, his, his track record. He's done some good work. But in Vancouver, I don't know how much credit we want to give him, good or bad, for those picks, just because most GMs don't have the time for that stuff. Yeah. What they do have the time for, however, is to go to international tournaments. And that's where they do a lot of their scouting work, if you're an NHL GM, because the U18s happens at the end of the regular season, the trade deadline's done. Most of your work for the year is already finished. Finished. Like There's, there's nothing left, so you, you have every ability to, to fly over to Europe watch these players play. And Pat Colson, I mean, frankly, I'm not going to bullshit you. Like, he had a, bull, uh, a bad tournament. And if Jim Benning was watching that or any other GM was watching that and trying to reconcile that with scouting reports that described him as the next Todd Bertuzzi in his prime or whatever, I think that there would be a disconnect in, in what they were reading from their scouting staff and what they were seeing with their own two eyes. And 
uh, certainly I think that it would be difficult for a GM to kind of go against their own intuition on that front. Well, I feel like I've heard it talked about that he just played so much hockey over the course of the last year that he might have been exhausted headed he, into that tournament. He was at the Holinka. Yeah. He was at the VHL. He was in the KHL. He was in the MHL. And never for more than like a game at a time. This yeah. is something that nobody really brings up when they talk about his quote-unquote lackluster production. Jeremy Davis charted it on Next Gen Hockey. But Colson was playing like one game in the VHL, shift to the KHL, back to the MHL, back to the KHL, and, and on and on, right? I'm trying to... to uh, Suitcase Pod Colson should be his nickname, and he's not even a pro player yet. No. And, and I think, that, like, here's one thing that to me... Uh, Rogers well for his NHL career. Valeri Bragg and the Russian head coach uh, of their world junior team, he hates putting under-19 players on his world junior championships rosters. He doesn't like having them on the roster, period. He had Pot Colson playing, like, top six minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, that to me is about as good a sign as any. Like, if he could win over Valeri Bragan, I think that there might be something there. That's Bragan rights right there. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to touch that one. Oh, look at that. It's time to go. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, well, let's talk about um, – let's move on from, from the draft talk here because, you know, I, I hope we've touched on enough players there that one of the guys you've just described winds up being the, the guy that the Canucks take at 10. Uh, but, you know, if they're not, so far we can't go through the entire list. We would be here no. all day long. Let's talk about something that we can talk about, something that wrapped up last week, and that's the NHL schedule with Game 7 of the Stanley Cup final. You and I were talking about this at your birthday party on Saturday night, uh, just just laughing it up as we talked about this series. You know, the Blues wind up taking it. They win game seven in the end. But is this, like, one of the least memorable cup finals in history? I feel like we're going to come to September, October. Next season is going to start. And, like, yeah, good for the Blues. They won. But it'll be like this never even happened. I think, worst of all, we're going to have that reaction. And it, it wasn't like it let us down. I think everybody anticipated going into that Stanley Cup final that it was going to be the least compelling Stanley Cup final <laughs> that they had ever viewed. <laughs> and, like, I mean, I, I mean that in the comparison to, for example, the 2011 and 12 Cup final, which was when the New Jersey Devils and Los Angeles Kings ended up playing. That, to me, is the gold standard for, for shitty hockey. And in fact, it was so bad at the time, I'm going to be honest with people, I almost stopped watching hockey because I was like, I I have no interest in watching the sport. If this is the direction that the game is heading in, I want no part in it. The Kings' next cup two years later against New York was like just as bad, honestly. The cup final was, but that was the one where they had the 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 conference finals with the Blackhawks, right? The real yeah. slugfest. That was an amazing series. Yes. The True. playoffs where <laughs> the Kings won their first Stanley Cup was not amazing. And, and for me, that was like, oh, shit, we're going into the dead puck era again. And I think that the dead puck era is ongoing. I still think that we're working our way out of it. And the concern for me is more long-term because we know the NHL is a copycat league. And, yeah. like, you listen to Jim Benning talking, and all of a sudden it's no longer speed and skill. We need to get tough. We need to get big. We need to get strong. We need to follow in the footsteps of the St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins, who I, I, I hate to say it, but Jim Benning's actually kind of miscast them. They're not really that team anymore. They're but the, if he, They are the skill team. They, they are. The, it sounds fucked up, but they are the skill team. Uh, so it's it, that's, for me, what is scary. I think that I can get over the Cup Finals being so bad this year because I have so much to do anyway. I was, like, putting it on in the background, occasionally gifting stuff, and then, 
getting back into six hours at a time of prospect footage. But I mean, like if, if this has a profound impact on how teams build themselves going forward, I'm really going to hate this Stanley Cup final. Well, let's talk about the takeaway lessons of this Cup final on both sides, because there is this sense of the Blues, like you said. On some level, it is this uh, you know, reintroduction of heavy teams again that you need to be a bruising force, because let's be honest, like the other takeaway lesson of the St. Louis Blues and they tie together, they are tied together lessons, is that every bad team is going to look at what they did and say, well, we shouldn't blow it up. We shouldn't, uh, you know, sell off our guys. We should just stay the course because... I always forget about that point. Anything can happen, right? Look at this team that was in last place on January 3rd, wins the Stanley Cup in Game 7 of the (sighs) final. They win their first ever championship in team history, and it's because they had a plan and they stuck to it, and we should too. There's that side of it, but also, like, that's kind of true. It's not, I don't think when people bemoan the fact that bad teams are going to really look at the though? Blues. I, let me finish. Okay. When people bemoan the fact that bad teams are going to look at the Blues and what they did and say, we should do that when you're not the Blues, I don't think. Even though they won Game 7, even though they won the Stanley Cup, I still believe that the St. Louis Blues were a bad team this year. The Canucks dummied them both times they played them. It was like a brutalizing uh, result in those games. And like, look, man, they headhunted their way to a cup. They played the heavy game. They did not play a skill game. They are not a good team. They cannot play a skill game. I'm going to push back on this point a little bit because, and this is absolutely not like a pat on the back. I'm not looking to to sound genial here, which, of course, is a very douchey way to lead to a point, but Mm -hmm. bear with me. Bear with me. Okay. Going into this season, I looked at the roster that the St. Louis Louis Blues built with Ryan O'Reilly, with some of the moves they made in the offseason, and I thought to myself, holy shit, like, this is a cup contender on paper. And then I had my lunch fed to me by the end of November when they were last place in the league, right? So, I mean, like, I'm not arguing that I was right or or wrong or whatever. The point I'm trying to make is that I I don't think that that them being good is necessarily as surprising as, as... some make it out to be. Like, had, that that roster, man, they made some good moves last offseason. They had a hot goalie. They have a very good, legitimate number one defenseman. And Ryan O'Reilly was on fire through the playoffs. I still think, like, look, everything that I just described is a number one center, a number one D-man, a number one goalie. That's all you need to win a cup, ultimately. But, I mean, like, if they're good enough, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, elite talent drives championships. But I still don't think that's a very good team. Like, I still... I, 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 the, the, no matter what happened after January 4th, the pre-January 4 blues are who I have in my mind as my mental image of that team all year. I, and I think the Sharks beat them if they're healthy. Yeah. Like, I, I, of I'll, I'll concede do. that point. Of course they do. And the, the Sharks, like, fuck, I feel bad for the Sharks. Like, like, shout out to C because that's some bullshit. This is the best team they've ever put together. And they just completely, like, exploded into a million shattered broken bones and teeth and concussions. And and it was like watching the 2010-11 Canucks. Yeah. Where it was like, 
oh no, this is one of the best teams ever built. And then by the time they got to the end of the road, there was just like nothing left. That's exactly what I told her last week because I was having those flashbacks as well. Like they ran out of bubblegum to hold the players together. It was so bad. But like St. Louis was actively exploiting that. They were l- genuinely targeting guys in that Western Conference final to try and run them out of the series. Ah, but every team is going to do that. I know though. that, but like... That's not the mark of a good team. <laughs> like you could, if you were to play them straight up, you would lose. Hundred percent. And and if the Sharks were even okay, I'll take it a step further. If the Sharks had a healthy Eric Carlson, never mind, no Pavelski, yeah. no Hurdle, no Meyer. Like I think just having a healthy Eric Carlson because I like I'm surprised this didn't didn't get more play. Like Carlson was fucking amazing these playoffs on one leg and it's the second time he's done this in three years like he was almost a point per game on one leg yeah that's insane yeah that's fucked up that that took me from a guy who was like you shouldn't spend all this crazy money on him he's not worth it he's too questionable on the health front to pay him whatever he wants he deserves every penny like maybe we're at a point where we legitimately underrate eric carlson i i kind of think that we're almost at that point because that is one of the most miraculous sporting feats i've ever seen somebody who genuinely could not move playing that well he needs a Kawhi season this year where they just load manage him all the way to the playoffs oh yeah and and i feel like st louis is a good enough team that they can do that and have it really not cost them all that much to sit him out. You mean San Jose? Y- yeah, 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 sorry, yeah. sorry. San Jose, yes. Yeah. No, yes. they they could. I mean, depending on how this offseason goes, because they got Joe Pavelski hitting free agency. And, and but then again, I mean, Doug Wilson, he does this every summer. He just got two draft picks for Justin Braun. Like, <laughs> this isn't fair. I, I call quits. Like, yeah. It's it's some garbage. No, I know. I, I'm surprised that you do not have more to say as far as just roasting me on my take that the Stanley Cup winners are a bad team. Uh, but the lesson on the other side of this final, like we were fucked no matter what. Mm-hmm. No matter who won in terms yeah. of a copycat league that has takeaway lessons, like yeah. the, all of the lessons here are bad. St. Louis, 100%. It's, it's, it's fine to be a bad team. Stick with your plan, and maybe you'll win the cup. And also play a heavy style and just throw disgusting hits in the playoffs, and that's how you win. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the lesson from the Boston side, if they were to win, is that nothing matters. Mistakes <laughs> don't matter. Literally nothing that you do matters. All, as long as you have, like, four or five successes, those successes can be big enough that they will overcome every other mistake that you make. So as much as you and I want to sit here and say, Jim Benning has royally fucked up this Canucks rebuild. They have spent $20 million in basically like dead contracts. There's bad money up and down this roster. So many mistakes. It's already in dire straits. And if he goes out and spends more bad money on July 1st, July 1 could be the end of this rebuild. It could be the death knell for Elias Pettersson getting to play competitive, meaningful playoff games over the course of the next five to seven to eight to ten years. As much as we want to say that, and it makes sense to say that, you look at a team like the Boston Bruins, who have lost every major blockbuster trade they've been involved in for the better part of the last nine years. They have, like, 
you know, they had those three picks in a row in the first round that year. The best thing they have to show for it is Louis DeBrusque. Uh, or, or Jake DeBrusque, rather. Good player. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, he's, he's useful. That one I worked mean, out. I mean, the best thing they have to show for it is Louis DeBrusque doing the play-by-the analyst uh, role on the broadcast. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Louis's great. Uh, uh, wonderful, Good wonderful person. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, Jake DeBrusque is the best player they get out of that. And it doesn't matter. It literally, like, everything that they fucked up, and they have fucked up a lot over the course of the last however long, because they have, like, like we were just saying about St. Louis, sometimes it's all you need is three pieces. They have those pieces, and they have managed to hang on to them. All the rest of these mistakes, and they have been catastrophic mistakes, do not seem to catch up with them at all. Here is some very, very minor, and I can't stress this enough, minor pushback. Even when they fucked up those three draft picks, though, and maybe this actually speaks to your point, maybe. Like, they actually had a good overall draft when you look at what they did rounds two through seven. That's where they got Brandon Carlo, a top four defenseman. Uh, JFK is on his way. Jacob Forbeka, Carlson. Like, they, they found some good players in that draft. It's just, for whatever reason, they, they terribly fucked up that first round. Apparently, the reason they did that was they were working their fucking ass off to try and put together a trade to get Noah Hannafin. And they thought that they were going to be able to do it with their three first-round picks. And when they couldn't do that, they found themselves with their pants down. Not really a good excuse, but that's how it's been explained to me on multiple occasions. I think the real reason that it happened is it's the funniest thing that could have possibly happened. Dude, I was watching that. (laughs) That was before the computer boys were hired. And we were just hanging out in my basement suite watching that game. And it was the funniest, like, half hour of my life. Because we were just... We were just howling, looking at each other, going, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd ask Cam, I'd be like, you, you got to have something to explain this? Like, I mean, like, you're, you're the chief computer boy here with the draft analytics, and he's just laughing. So, clearly he didn't. I mean, it was, uh, it was probably one of the funniest draft moments I've witnessed in my lifetime. But they are like the chaos team, right? They, they are the team that flies in the face of every criticism that we have of long-term mistakes catching up with you. Mm-hmm. If you just hit on the picks that they hit on, they got a great center in Bergeron. They got a generational defenseman in free agency, the kind of free agent signing that will never be seen again because players like that just do not hit UFA status ever. Nope. Like, they did all of these things, and they did them, like, before before even Shirelli or Benning were on the scene. Like yeah, Jeff Gordon built that team. Exactly. And it's, it, it's super weird, but, and, like, he was there for six months, and he yeah. built that fucking team. And David Krejci was, like, what, a third-round pick? Like, uh, second. Second. Yeah. Uh, but still, like, they have they have done well enough in, you know, important roles, certainly. But And they, you know, they added some fine pieces at the deadline to shore up their third line this year. But, like... Charlie Coyle. Yeah. It's just, it's just, like, it flies in the face of every criticism that we want to throw at the Canucks that, like, all of these mistakes will catch up with you because if if a Quinn Hughes is good enough, if an Elias Pettersson is good enough, if, uh, you know, a Bo Horvat and a Brock Besser are good enough, it seems like if you have five or six key roles filled, you're fine. Not if your bottom six is getting outscored two to one, though. I think that is that is one of the key <laughs> distinctions that we need to make. And, and like, at the very least, they have cromulent bottom six players, and you used that word this weekend, so I... Th- 
I throw that one back at you. Thank I mean, you. Yes, Solo, a perfectly cromulent film. Yeah, it's, it's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, look at Charlie Coyle. I mean, like, that guy would be playing on the first line for the Canucks. True. And and how sad a statement is that? So I think depth does matter to Marcus a certain Johansson degree. Marcus would be a second line winger on the Canucks. Like, these are all. And <laughs> yes, this is all true. Well, I gotta say, like one of the craziest things in in this in these playoffs was when Johansson got hot, and and you were hearing the insiders being like, "Oh, well, the Canucks were hot on his his tracks at the deadline." What the fuck was Marcus Johansson, a pending UFA, gonna do for the Vancouver Canucks if they acquired him at the deadline? But it's true, you did hear that talk. I remember it at the time. When injuries were mounting, they were like, "Oh, talks going on with Washington." Yeah. At first, it was uh, uh, Burakovsky. Yes. That, that was like, oh, they could swap Ben Hutton for Burakovsky. Well, look, look out for that. And then all this talk. Yeah, I do remember talk about Johansson around the deadline. It, it was definitely a thing. And you heard it from a lot of people. And again, I mean, like my reaction then was the same as it was in the playoffs when it got brought up again, which is what the fuck was Marcus <laughs> Johansson going to do for the Canucks in the final 20 games of the season when they were eliminated from the playoffs in like fucking January? Yeah. I mean, uh, like, I, I got I to gotta say, and and you know what, like, it's, I don't know if this will get me in trouble. There are definitely moments where, I, where covering this team to the extent that I have in these last few years, I feel like uh, Mugatu in, in uh, Zoolander. I feel fair. like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> I mean, like, and, and the Joe Hansen rumors were definitely one such moment where I was just like, how the fuck does this make even an iota of sense? In what world? And it's not the first time we've heard something like that, too. Remember when Andrew Ladd was a pending UFA? The Canucks were out of the playoffs by, like, December, and they were connected yeah, to him at the deadline. I remember that, yeah. What, uh, I mean, Local good, boy. Good thing these things never actually happen. I think I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's, that's, that's ooh. <laughs> Folks, it's bad. Yes, um, it sure is. But let's talk about something that might be bad, might not be. I mentioned it earlier. Alex Edler re-signs today. Three-year deal. Uh, actually, update. Update. It, uh, Elliot Friedman is reporting that it might be a four-year deal, yeah. but that they've found a way to work around the expansion protection uh, issue. That was the only holdup. It wasn't term, by the sounds okay. of it. Okay. Uh, but then again, we're hearing so many different things. Like, it's changed every half hour. What is or isn't happening. Yes, the story initially started to break that, he, that a deal was imminent, uh, right when you arrived at my building. So I figured we can't not talk about it. But yes, you're right. We should also explain we don't have the full depth uh, of the details of what this thing looks like ultimately right now. Um, you were making the case when you were on this show previously, back mm-hmm. in uh, January or February or whenever that was, yep. uh, that Edler walking and just you know being, being done with him, cut, turning the page on that, might not be the worst thing. Might, in fact, be the best play here. Uh, how are you reacting to this deal? If it goes to four years, uh, as, as Friedman's reporting, then feeling pretty fucking vindicated. Uh, I'll tell you that much right now. I yeah. mean, like, on the bright side, it looks like they've avoided a scenario where they're going to have to protect him in the expansion draft. And even the, the actual cost itself is, is reasonable at $5 million. We'll have to see how the contract is structured, though, because that's going to be the interesting thing. He's not going to have the 35-plus the contract, which means the Canucks can buy him out. Mm-hmm. 
uh, even if the contract goes past his age 35 season. Uh, so hopefully it's not loaded up with bonuses at the front of the deal because that's going to bite the Canucks in the ass when they inevitably have to buy him out because he's a 36-year-old defenseman that's had uh, a history of injuries and back surgery. I mean, you don't you don't wish that upon Edler, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where he really is an effective defenseman at uh, 36 years old. I mean, I did the math this year. There are only 12 defensemen in the NHL, entire NHL, that were 35 and older playing significant minutes. At the Last same year. time, uh, you know, we keep hearing all this talk that the team is interested in whether it's Jake Gardner or Tyler Myers, one of those two guys, and it seems like talk start at seven years, $50 million was the number that Kiprios reported today. On some level, is it not better the devil you know than the one that you don't? No. 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 Like, Jake Gardner is a better defenseman than Alexander Edler. Right like now, he, yes, but he, but the deal that would sign okay, let's, would also take Jake Gardner to him being 36 as well, right? No, like, it would take him to be 35. So if Edler signs a three-year deal, then they're going to, yes, like end at the exact same age. If Edler signs a four-year deal, then he'll have an extra uh, year on Gardner. And then you have to factor in things like a growing salary cap, which mm-hmm. is going to mean that if, if all things being equal, Edler signs for his market value, uh, as opposed to whatever Edler's market value is, the percentage of a cap hit that Gardner is going to be on the books for near the expiration of his deal is going to be significantly lower than the cap percentage that, let's say, Alexander Edler is uh, equal to in the final year of his deal. So I think that uh, that, for me, is what kind of seals the deal and why I think that Gardner made more sense for, for the Canucks from day one. I just want to see a situation where, like, his role changes though, right? Like where an Alex Edler or Chris Tanev can both stay, but they cannot be top pairing guys anymore. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like I, I, I like that scenario as well, but I mean, even in a, a diminished role, I don't think Chris Tanev has a lot to offer. Really? Like I, I he, he's just not that good anymore. Like he's, he's, it's not a, it's not a situation where he's being counted on to do too much. It's he, it's that he's been counted on to do too much for so long. He's breaking down. Yeah, like it, we're we're watching it in real time. He was barely a positive wins above replacement player last year. It's it's he's just not what he used to be. Period. And I I think that that's part of the reason why the Canucks are rumored to be looking uh, at, at trade options. That's that's part of it, and <laughs> I mean they they it's never like four like, years too late. Right? Yeah, they never like to to sell high, buy low, right? They like to do things the opposite way and hope that the rest of the league hasn't noticed that he's uh, <laughs> he's deteriorating right before their very eyes. But I mean, it's that's the the fact of the matter here. He's yeah. not what he used to be, and I think relying on Chris Tanev to do anything beyond that of a third pair defenseman is is really a fool's errand because even if he can recapture. Uh, at least, let's say, 80% of what he used to be, what are the odds that he's going to be able to do that for more than 20 games at a time? We've seen it. He can't stay healthy. Like, eh. And and the way that these injuries occur, I mean, it compounds. There's a reason. Like, it, It's a snowball effect. And I just think if you can compact his minutes a little bit, or curtail them, rather, you might be able to curtail the injuries as well. Maybe. Yeah. Like, maybe. I mean, or, or maybe not. That's that's It's hard to say. It's it's a tough situation, and and I, I feel for Chris Tanev because he's given everything, like he's literally given his health to this franchise. Yeah, to the point where he's not going to have a very long career, I don't think, and not because he didn't have the ability, just because he couldn't hold up.
Um, well, as we revisit these conversations that uh, you and I had had several months ago now, I do recall uh, after we were finished recording that episode, uh, sticking around and hanging out on your couch for a good hour, hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours maybe, uh, you know, knocking back some, some whiskey gingers and, and, and talking about life. And uh, one of the big topics on your mind at the time uh, was Jason Botchford related because you were in the crosshairs uh, in those exact moments, uh, in in the middle of a, of a minor spat, and you were you were freaking out about it. You didn't know how to handle the pressure. You could feel a hit piece coming in the athletes around the corner, and it was stressing you the fuck out. Um, you know, let's let's talk about the man uh, a little bit now, as I'm sure he will be remembered quite a bit here over draft weekend. <sighs> fuck. Uh, talked about this with Jackson recently on Roxy Fever, but fuck, like, you really missed him during these playoffs. Yeah. You just know that he would have had a lot to say about the Bruins and Blues series. And, I mean, like... he He's the one person who could have made that series interesting, right? 100%. 100%. And, and he had so many great things planned. He was going to travel to Europe to cover the World uh, Hockey Championships and, and get some stories out of VP. Uh, he had big things planned for the Athletic Vancouver. He, like, it's it's such a shame, um, and it's still it still fucks with me that he's not around. Like, it just doesn't feel real. Yeah, I'm like uh, the same way. Like when I scroll through my DMs and I see see his face, you know, he's too far down the list. Yeah, Does yeah. it doesn't make sense that I haven't got a botched DM in in months now, right? No, it's it's not not right and uh i i just like i wonder what this media landscape is going to look like in the coming years because i mean botch was canucks coverage canucks coverage was botch you know he was at the center of everything and uh, like the stories all like he siphoned them they all went through him Mm -hmm. you know Uh, it's 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 gonna feel weird and i don't think i was able to process it in real time in the same way that others were because i had so much going on which it was kind of like a sensory overload at the time and just in general it was perplexing it it didn't feel real because i mean like the the guy was in better shape than me like you know what i mean like he he didn't look it it just it, it didn't make sense then and i'm still having a hard time making sense of it now and and that is a funny story though that you bring up and it is <laughs> it's heartwarming because it speaks to his character he spent a week fucking with me sending me like gifts of artillery fire going off and telling <laughs> i think his exact words that were you're at war yeah that we were at war and that i poked a tiger and uh that he's got nukes stored up and uh like he was gonna just Wh- what destroy was this argument even about i don't even remember it was, it was about point. bull horvat's contract oh right right yeah, right yeah. that you were still standing by your belief that it was a bad contract at the time yeah yeah well it goes back to what we said uh, earlier you gotta trust the process even when you're wrong right mm-hmm. well i would not trust that process because i felt <laughs> like you were wrong at the time on that i'm gonna side with botchford on that one but no uh it is funny that like and then he didn't do shit but yeah that was the funniest part <laughs> he didn't do shit someone who was so nurturing and did so much much to bring people uh, up as far as like this next wave of, of hockey media in this city was also this like horrifying figure that would, if you were under the gun from this man, my goodness, Lord help you. <laughs> like, There's nobody on this planet you wanted to be at war with 
less than Jason Botchford because I mean like remember what he did with the Arizona Coyotes like a bunch of us athletic writers would like DM each other and be like why is Botchford at war with the Arizona Coyotes this small market team that has no rivalry with the Canucks he has no reason to take up quarrel with them but he had his reasons whatever they were let me tell you why what it is because I know exactly what it is it's not that was not I mean, yes, it was technically a war with the Arizona Coyotes, but what it really was was a war with the old guard of me- of hockey media and what they decide to- gets covered and what they decide doesn't. Right. Who they put under the microscope and who they decide does not get put under the microscope. Dale Talon, a guy who does not get put under the microscope. Mm-hmm. The Arizona Coyotes do not get put under the microscope. And so if you're going to try and defend the people that you feel like should not be under the microscope, you need to properly punch at the people who should be. And that's what that was to me. Anyways. I mean, like he, he said similar things about the Canucks and about certain people, certain people who were, and I quote, enablers. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to say that I agreed with him in many instances about the enablers because, I mean, it's just unprecedented, an era of utility like this one that didn't result in in multiple heads rolling. But here we are, right? So, no, I mean, he always, like, for better or worse, for right or for wrong, Botchford would always fight for what he believed in, period. And, and that doesn't mean he was above apologizing because I know for a fact, like, uh, talking to people close to him in the, the weeks after this this hor- horrible news was revealed, uh, like he, he actually had a side of him that was a little bit more, uh, I guess, forgiving, uh, apologetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you kind of had to work your way through the the war-ready botch to get there, right? <laughs> and you had to let time settle, and then eventually he'd always come around, right? And I think that's what happened with me and him this year. We had our little spat. It was a little bit funny because Twitter was sending us both, like, uh, sending us messages like, I don't know which side to choose. I feel like mom and dad are fighting. And I'm like, well, for one, extremely flattering to be held in that esteem, deserve it or otherwise. But uh, for two, I, like, I, I still, like, love the guy, even if he's, like, giving me multiple anxiety attacks in one week, the likes yeah. of which I haven't felt in years. I mean, like, he's still botched. But I said to you at the time, and I'll say it again right now, like... to be under the gun from him as frightening as it might be feeling like oh my god this guy who i love and admire so much is is taking aim at me i'm in the crosshairs of someone who does not pull punches like uh, i told you then does that not uh is that not the like biggest indicator that you have like arrived which i guess you already know that you've arrived there have already been multiple jd burke arrival indicators but like you know i think we all know he loved tom drance uh like tom 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 got like this the treatment before any of the rest of us oh yeah and those two fought like crazy like i think on some level as much as jpat has talked about like you know, uh, the beef over the Athletes name being a real beef that he was genuinely mad about. I think, like, Botch wanted people to be able to argue with him as well. 100%. And something that people brought up, because I was articulating this panic attack to any poor sucker who <laughs> was within, like, 100 feet of me. I was so wound up that week. Uh, but when it all happened and he was just like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, I... I like JD and yada yada. I was like, oh shit, that was nothing at all. I got worked up for absolutely nothing. And they're like, they probably probably respects that you stood up to him. Yeah. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that does kind of fit his M.O. a bit. I mean, like, on the I've Arrived moment, I mean, like, I, I, I'm generally uncomfortable with anything that resembles a compliment. Uh, but I, like, <laughs> just to push back a little bit on that, I, like, I, I was painting houses as recently as, like, a month and a half ago. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, you're a known commodity in the city. Like, yeah, mostly clothes, but yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's funny. I just did a, a, a hit on an obscure sports station that, that shall remain nameless. I appreciate that. And uh, it's pretty damn funny. Yeah, like You're here representing EP Rinkside and no one else. Yeah, and Elite Prospects. <laughs> and the first comment on my hit was, I can't believe you guys employ that clown. And it was like completely devoid of opinion, too, is the part that I like the most. Like It was just a me reporting on the rumor about the Canucks having interest in the Red Wings six overall pick and somehow still mad about that. But I mean, like, yeah, infamy works just as well for me. I I've found, but you know, um, I said the same thing to John Jang when John dropped his, like the Sedins are, are were never superstars take. Come on, John. Cause he was, I look, I know I don't agree with that take either, but he was getting it. He got a nickname in the Pravis. I was like, bud, what more sign do you need that, like, you're here, you know? Yeah. This is your moment. It is good to be in feuds. Maybe it's just because I'm a wrestling fan. I tend to think everybody gets over out of this. There's no drawback to being in a feud. Yeah, It's I just mean, easy to lose sight of it in the moment. To that exact end, I've had so many shitty nicknames in my life, and I finally got a good one. Chady. This, this was the year I got a good nickname, and, I mean, that's, yeah, that's... Fuck, I'm going to miss that guy. came from Botch. King of the nickname. And how many people got good nicknames from Botch? So many. More more than anyone will Sorry. know. Good nicknames. What I meant by that are nicknames that they actually are happy to have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I worded that poorly. Yes, yes. How many people got great nicknames from Botchford? Uh, uh, all of them. All of them. Every single one. How many would someone be happy to have? Really, maybe just yours. Yeah, I don't think the boat captain or <laughs> or baby dragon is is uh, or, thrilled. Uh, the talented Mr. Ripley. But he's a legend, man. Like it's. Uh, it's it's impossible to believe that he's gone, and it's moments like this at the draft. It's moments like you know uh, when the season begins, uh, when it begins, even when training camp opens, even mm-hmm. where you know we are are going to feel it again and again and again. And I hate to linger on it with people uh, when I have them on the show, but at the same time, like we got to keep his memory you, alive. You do. You like, do. I I think his his story is still being written, and it lives on in in every one of us. Uh, in that second wave that are that are working our way up the industry like I think we're a part of his his legacy and his history and I know for a fact that that's what he would want us to to believe too and that's why it's important that we keep bringing him up that we don't let his memory fade I fully agree with that even mm-hmm. though they're difficult conversations to have there's always yeah. laughs in them but it's it's hard at the same time and it's never um you know, it's never going to get any easier. There's no one else like that guy. So No, sir. Uh, well, J.D., I think uh, as far as legacies go, you are you are writing a pretty good one of your own right now. Congratulations on everything uh, that's gone on. Thanks, uh, man. With Elite I Prospects. Congrats on the work that you have done in the lead-up to this draft. I hope you finally get to sleep on <laughs> Sunday when all of the picks <laughs> have been made and it's all said and done. Uh, you certainly deserve it, bud. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and thanks for the kind words as well. Russell, look out!
Oh, not even 20 minutes after we were done recording, uh, Elias Pettersson wins the Calder Trophy at the NHL Awards in Las Vegas and uses his platform to uh, immediately pay tribute to Jason Botchford and uh, had some some real touching words to say uh, during his press availability after winning the award as well. Uh, you know, it's not a surprise that he won. It's nice to see. I wasn't expecting Bennington to uh, take the thing in the end because when you play less than 40 games in your rookie season, it uh, shouldn't be enough to win the Calder, I don't think. And look, no, nobody had the impact that Pedersen did this year, whether the team made the playoffs or not. So uh, no surprise there, but just a, a touching tribute. And, and the first of, I'm sure, many this weekend. I would be surprised if the Canucks didn't say something before they made their pick. And with the draft being in Vancouver, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple other teams uh, threw in a mention as well. Uh, the man was just a legend, and the tributes will continue to roll in. And it, honestly, um, something that I'm kind of looking forward to over the course of this draft weekend. But uh, my thanks to J.D. Burke for appearing on the show, talking some draft, talking some Canucks with us this week. Uh, plenty of episodes uh, set to be recorded this weekend. I should have a ton of stuff coming your way before the end of the month, and you can find it all right here. Of course, uh, plenty of people coming into town for the draft, uh, and, and it's, it's going to be a hell of a time. I'm really looking forward to this weekend. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Going to have some great conversations over the course of the week, and hopefully I can share those with you uh, before too long here. And going to have some uh, more Raptors coverage as well. Cannot ignore the fact that the Raps win it all in the NBA championship. Certainly more engrossing, more entertaining as well than anything that we saw in the Stanley Cup playoffs this week. So uh, going to be touching on that in the weeks ahead as well. Plenty of stuff to look forward to. It's all happening. This is the best time of year, as I said last week when I was talking to C. Morley. So, um... Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want to support the show, of course, this episode, like every episode, produced by you, the Patreon donor. You can head on over to patreon.com slash realgoodshow, uh, kick some dollars in the hat, and I'll be doing some bonus content uh, in the months ahead as well. Hopefully in the weeks ahead, I have something planned out with uh, Viaz Saran from Roxy Fever. <laughs> really looking forward uh, to that, so hopefully we can pull the trigger on that before too long. I do want to thank everyone who uh, has continued to support the show, and if you would like to do so, once again, head on over to patreon.com slash Real good show. If you can't afford to support the show monetarily, uh, just throw me a review, whether that's on the iTunes store or uh, I guess it's Apple Podcasts is what they call it now, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. I uh, would love to see some support. Those always give us a little boost in the algorithm as well. Uh, so, yeah, uh, take care. Big weekend here. Big weekend, hopefully, for you as well. Get out there and enjoy it, and I will talk to you soon. Until then, be real. Be good. Be real good.
it torture? Jesus Christ, are you listening to, to me? Yeah, I'm just saying. 56, like, would random. You, these aren't professionals. Would you, would you, would you recommend Dude. it to, like, the military as, like, yeah, a, a government torture I process would, or whatever? Like, fuck. Like, is it torture? <laughs> like, you. Fuck off.